How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. I'm in conversation today with Admiral William McRaven, retired Navy uh, Admiral and a person who is quite well known for, among other things, the leading the capture of Osama bin Laden and also Saddam Hussein. So, Bill, thank you very much for being with us. Hey, David. Great to spend some time with you this morning. So you've written a number of books, and one I'd like to talk about today is a book called Sea Stories, which is sort of an autobiography and talks about your childhood and how you became a Navy SEAL and then goes through the Osama bin Laden capture, and also the capture of Saddam Hussein. So why don't we talk about your childhood for a moment? Uh, your father was in the military, is that right? Yeah, he was a uh, fighter pilot in the in the Army Air Corps initially. Uh, he had played professional football. He was a running back for the Cleveland Rams. And early 1941, he saw the, uh, I think, the storm clouds of war brewing. And, uh, and he and five of his other teammates went from Cleveland, drove out to Los Angeles, and signed up for the Army Air Corps. And uh, your mother, uh, when did he meet your mother? So not till after the war. She was an East Texas uh, school teacher, raised in a small town in East Texas called Grapeland, Texas. And they met after the war back in Texas, where he was reassigned uh, after World War II. And what rank did he uh, achieve ultimately in the military? Yeah, he retired as a colonel in uh, 1967. So uh, spent his formative years as a fighter pilot, and then later on became a staff officer and then retired out of uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. So when you were growing up, did your father say you should go in the military also? No, you know, he, he was he was not the great Santini. You know, he was uh, just a, a terrific father. I was just blessed to have two great parents. And uh, he encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. Now, you know, when, when you're raised around a kind of a military lifestyle, and of course, all of his friends were, you know, retired military. And they had... Uh, they had also all served in World War II. So being around the camaraderie, uh, being around that lifestyle, I think just generated an interest in uh, certainly me as a young boy uh, to join the military. So as a young boy, were you a great athlete? Were you a great scholar? Yeah, I definitely was not a great scholar. I was a pretty good athlete. As I, I said, my father had passed on some decent genes to me. So I, I was a pretty good runner and uh, good at all the kind of ball sports that you played growing up, certainly in Texas. So football, basketball, baseball. So in your book, you point out that you were a uh, mile runner. You ran the mile in high school and uh, you weren't Jim Ryan, but you did pretty well, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I tell this story and, and the story is meant to, to kind of bring out moments that I think we all have in our life, David, where somebody does one thing and it kind of changes the vector of your life. And that's kind of, frankly, what I intended to do with the whole book on sea stories. I didn't want to make it a memoir. Uh, I wanted to make it a series of stories about my life that I hopefully had a, a little bit of a lesson to be learned, not necessarily from me, but the lesson in general. 
And I tell the story in, uh, in that particular chapter. It was coming up on my last race. I was trying to break the school record in the mile, uh, which at the time was four minutes, 32.7 seconds. And the week before I had run a race and had been miserable, I was like five seconds off, uh, which you know is a, a lifetime in the mile. And the night before I was getting ready to run my last race, a coach called me. And, and frankly, I, it was a coach. I, I didn't even think he knew who I was. It, you know, Texas track was not the sport football was. But he called me that night, uh, and I had a tremendous amount of respect for this coach. And he said, look, Bill, I, I understand you're running your last race tomorrow. You're trying to break the school record. He says, I know you can do this. You just get out there and run as hard as you can, and I know you can break that school record. Well, you know, the, the next day I went on, and, uh, and because, frankly, of the coach's inspiration, I was able to break the school record. And I told folks, look, it, the school record really meant nothing to anybody but me. And in fact, the next year, the record was broken by a, a young man who was a hell of a lot faster than I was. But the point was, by breaking that school record, I realized if I set a goal for myself, I could achieve that goal. And because I was able to break the school record, I said, you know what? I can go on to be a Navy SEAL. And so I look back on the points in my life this one phone call from this one coach, Coach Jerry Turnbow, who is still alive today and we are great friends, that one phone call that inspired me, that allowed me to kind of pass that hurdle of breaking a mile record, put me in a position to go on to do other things in my life. Okay, so uh, you decided to go to University of Texas and to join ROTC, R-O-T-C. Um, did you decide to do that over a military academy or what was your decision at the time? Well, you'd asked me early on whether or not I was a great scholar. And, uh, and that should be the answer to your question there, David. I, I did not have the grades uh, nor the aptitude to get into the Naval Academy. At the time, I think the Navy was looking for, uh, for young men uh, and women to join the service. My mother uh, was kind of the driving force. My mother would say, hey, here, sign this, go to this interview, do this. And the next thing you know, I was fortunate enough to get an ROTC scholarship to the university and had a fabulous time in the ROTC unit. By the way, um, what does it feel like to be the head of the University of Texas as you later were in your life? And, you know, you were a student there and then you come back as the head of it. That must have been pretty nice. Yeah, it was a little surreal because, uh, you know, and my wife uh, hates it when I tell people this. But, you know, I didn't exactly have the best GPA when I graduated. Uh, I think I was like a 298 or something and, uh, and barely got by. But the point I would always make in talking to students is, you know, you just don't know. You just kind of keep your head down. You do hard work. But I think most of the guys that uh, went to school with me would be very surprised uh, that I came back almost 40 years later to be the chancellor. Well, um, I became later the chairman of the board of trustees of Duke University, where I went to undergrad. And I don't think anybody even knew I was in the class. So uh, they had to look it up to see I was in the class. So I, you know, I understand the feeling. So um, you go into the ROTC, you graduate from University of Texas, and then you decide you want to be a Navy SEAL. Right, Why right. not just be a, something a little bit, a little bit easier? Navy SEALs, and that's dangerous. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, you know, like a lot of young men, I was looking for a challenge. Uh, I didn't know a lot about SEALs, hard to believe, but back in 1977, there were no movies about SEALs, there were no books, there was no nothing. My sister had been actually dating an Army Green Beret when I was still in high school. And I remember he came over to, uh, to pick her up for a date one time, and she was, uh, as always, running a little late. So I meet him at the door, and I'm kind of entertaining him. And, uh, 
uncharacteristically, back in the 70s, military officers were not supposed to be wearing their uniform out in civilian population. The Vietnam War was still going on. But he shows up at, at the door and he's in his kind of his dress uniform, army dress uniform. He's got his Green Beret on. And of course, I had seen the movie, The Green Berets with John Wayne. And so I, and I'm stunned by this guy, just kind of in awe. Well, he comes in, he's just a wonderful uh, army captain. And, you know, he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm looking to go into ROTC. And he says, then you, you need to go be a Navy SEAL. I'd never heard of the Navy SEALs. I'd, I'd heard about underwater demolition teams and frogmen, which of course became the Navy SEALs. But here was an Army Green Beret telling me to be a Navy SEAL. And so, uh, so that's kind of what headed me off in that direction. So what actually is a Navy SEAL and how many Navy SEALs are there? Yeah, so a Navy SEAL uh, is, again, you know, think of it in broad terms as a, as a Navy commando. As I said, we, we began as frogmen, and we all still consider ourselves Navy frogmen from the underwater demolition teams of World War II. And the UDTs, as we refer to them, they're the ones that went in prior to the amphibious landings, particularly in the Pacific, but also at Normandy, uh, to clear the beaches. So those were our roots. And then in 1962, John Kennedy established the Navy SEALs as a kind of a formal program. Uh, and of course, in Vietnam, the Navy SEALs were really responsible for counterinsurgency work uh, going after the, the Viet Cong. And that's really where we kind of earned our gravitas, if you will, was during the Vietnam era. And we are essentially commandos. But the acronym SEAL stands for Sea, Air, and Land. And so you've got to be a good frogman. You've got to be able to, you know, uh, be a good diver. You've got to be a good parachutist. And you have to be a good infantryman, for lack of a better word, because all of those tools come to play when you are a Navy SEAL. So can somebody say, I want to be a Navy SEAL? You just sign up and you're a Navy SEAL, or do you have to train for this? Oh, yeah. So you, uh, you can say, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And, uh, and for the enlisted guys, if you can pass a screening test, and it's not, a, it's not a very stringent screening test, because really being a Navy SEAL is really more about kind of what's in your heart and what's in your head than it is the physical aspect of it, although make no mistake about it, it is physically challenging. And then you go out to Coronado, California, to what we refer to as basic underwater demolition SEAL training, BUDS. Uh, a class normally starts, my class started with 110 guys. We ended up with 33, and that was actually a large class back in the day. So you've got about a 75% attrition rate, you know, going through SEAL training. And that, that has uh, been consistent for the last 50 some odd years. So during the training period of time, and you just write about it in your book, it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world. You're cold at times, you're hot at times, you're, you don't have enough food, it's dangerous. Did you ever say, I don't really think being a Navy SEAL is as great as I thought it was going to be. I'm going to drop out. No, I never really felt like quitting. But there were times when, you know, you are pushed to the very edge and it creeps into your head a little bit. But frankly, because I didn't know a lot about it, like I said, the young men going through it today, they've seen all the movies, they've seen the documentaries, they've read everything about it. I went in kind of uh, completely oblivious. I knew it was going to be hard. But the one thing I knew was, no matter what happened, I was not going to quit. And that really is the one quality that all SEALs have. I mean, we're not all, you know, six foot two, big brawny guys. You know, we're not all academic geniuses. We're not all two hour uh, marathon guys. But all of us have the one quality, which was we didn't quit. And that's what makes a SEAL. Okay. So you get through the program and you're a Navy SEAL. You're one of the 33 in your group. Uh, what were you assigned to do after that? So my first assignment was to an underwater demolition team, UDT-11. 
our mission in the UDT was really to be more focused directly with the Navy, to go out on ships and submarines. SEALs were a little bit more land-based. But in reality, there wasn't much difference. We all went through the same training. We all wore the SEAL Trident. We were all called SEALs. But my first uh, deployment was with a SEAL delivery vehicle. So these were little manned mini-subs, and I was a pilot. So if you think about a manned torpedo from World War II, this was uh, about that. You wore a wetsuit, and the idea was you would take limpet mines, large limpet mines, small limpet mines. You would go do ship attacks. So, of course, during the Cold War, we were always thinking about going into Vladivostok or someplace to hit Soviet shipping with our little mini-subs that were launched from big submarines. So it was, a, it was a great time to be a frogman. So if you're a Navy SEAL, how long does the average Navy SEAL stay in the Navy SEAL program before you get worn out or you just think it's too hard? I think part of it is the fact that you are out there doing a mission that you love to do. I mean, every week, David, uh, we were doing something exciting. And it gets to be a little routine until you take a breather. But every week you are jumping out of an airplane or you're locking out of a submarine or you're practicing training where you're blowing things up and you're shooting and you're doing the sort of things again that that young men find exciting. And then you're traveling off to faraway places. So there was never a dull moment. And and I think that adrenaline, uh, that excitement just keeps you moving. So, you know, most of the guys that come into the SEAL teams today, they are committed for a minimum, I think, of seven years once they get through training. And then at the seven-year mark, you know, it's, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to 10 years. And by the time you're at 10 years, you know, it's like, well, I might as well stay for 20. When you served in the Navy SEALs an unusually long period of time, maybe the longest of anybody, how many years were you a Navy SEAL? Well, I was in for 37 years, which is a long time, but that had a lot to do with the fact that I got promoted. So, you know, at some point in time, you're kind of up or out. Fortunately, my career allowed me to continue to move up. Um, and there have been a number of Navy SEALs that served longer than 37 years. Not a lot of them, but, uh, but a few of them out there. But, but mine was just really a function of, you know, I made one star and then two stars and three stars and four stars. So I was able to stay in longer as a result of that. So when did you get married? So I got married right after I finished the SEAL training. So it was 1978. My wife and I met at the University of Texas. And you didn't say to her, um, you know, this is a dangerous uh, profession I'm going to go in. Did she say, why don't you go into private equity or something really important? No, you know, she always tells me that the reason she fell in love with me was because, you know, I I was driven. I I had a goal. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, even though, candidly, we didn't know what a Navy SEAL was. We didn't know what the lifestyle was going to be like. I know she didn't. And I'm not sure I fully understood that once I joined the Navy and the Navy SEALs, I would be deploying away from home a lot. You know, she was 20 when we got married. I was 21. We'll be married 45 years here next May. And this growing up together, this uh, learning about life together, I think is what is what has kept us together. So you are involved in a number of dangerous missions and so forth. Uh, let's talk about one of them. Uh, you go to Iraq during the uh, post 9-11 period of time. Where were you on 9-11? Yeah, so on 9-11, I was actually recovering from a parachute accident. So I had been a Navy captain. I was referred to as the Commodore. I was in charge of all the SEALs on the West Coast. And we had gone out for really what was a routine parachute jump, free fall parachute jump. So the airplane gets up to about 13,000 feet, ramp comes down, you jump out. Unfortunately, this particular day, as I was falling from 13,000 feet to 5,500 feet, where you're going to open the parachute, a guy got underneath me. He opened his parachute. I hit his parachute, spun out of control, 
when I pulled my ripcord, the pilot chute came out, wrapped around one leg. Another part of the parachute came out, wrapped around another leg. I was completely entangled. The good news is the parachute opened. The bad news is when a parachute opens, it blossoms. It essentially took both legs and kind of cracked them in two. And I ended up pretty broken up a couple miles from the drop zone. Okay. So did you imagine that you would be sent in combat subsequent to uh, 9-11? Yeah, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to go into combat because I could still barely walk at the time. But I knew that the nation was going to go to war, that uh, the nation was probably going to have to address this al-Qaeda problem. So that did not surprise me. And in fact, I remember calling my, my two boys at the time, and I said, uh, guys, life as we know it is about to change. So how did you get assigned to go to Iraq uh, subsequent to the American invasion of Iraq? And uh, did you imagine at the time that you would be responsible for actually helping to catch Saddam Hussein? Well, what happened was right after 9-11, a uh, a retired Army general named Wayne Downing uh, was called by President Bush to come to the White House and run what was called the Office of Combating Terrorism. So he was going to be President Bush's essentially uh, point man on the war on terrorism. And I had worked uh, with General Downing over the years. So he reached out to me and said, look, I understand you're kind of broken up. Uh, Can't get you into battle, but I'd just like to come up to the White House. So I did that for two years, gave me time to recuperate a little bit. And then I was fortunate to make flag officer. I made one star there in the White House. Condoleezza Rice was was kind enough to do the ceremony and, and pin my star on me. And then I got assigned to a special operations unit down in Fort Bragg. And within a matter of months, I was in Iraq. I got to Iraq in October of 2003. The invasion had occurred in March of 2003, but the special operations guys and and everybody, all Americans in Iraq, were looking for Saddam Hussein. But my uh, unit's mission was specifically to hunt down what we referred to as, you know, the deck of cards. So there were uh, some public affairs guy had decided to make the deck of cards with Saddam Hussein being the ace of spades. So we were always looking for Saddam Hussein, and we had, uh, you know, people out there with you know, sources. We were working with the CIA. We were working with a lot of folks. And then in December of 2003, we we had a pretty good lead uh, on Saddam. And uh, fortunately, the special operations guys were working for me, uh, managed to locate him out in Tikrit. And and once again, a little bit surreal uh, as they pulled him out of this spider hole. And of course, he had this giant beard because he'd actually been kind of living in this spider hole for six or seven months, hiding from coalition forces. We brought him back to my headquarters, which was down in uh, in Baghdad at the time. So from Tikrit, which was uh, about an hour or so from Baghdad, uh, put him on a helicopter, brought him down. And uh, now all of a sudden I've got Saddam Hussein in my little compound and we're trying to figure out what to do with him. And I remember thinking, well, we had a plan to kind of move him from Iraq uh, off to a Navy ship uh, where he would be held outside of, uh, of Iraq and then would be held for, for trial by the Iraqis later on. But my boss at the time said, hey, no, you, you hold on to him and then we'll, we'll figure out where we're going to go from there. So I had him for the next 30 days and, you know, we treated him appropriately. You know, he was getting four square meals a day. I had a doctor and a security guy in with him 24-7. But it was just interesting. I've told folks watching him, when we first had him, he was still pompous. He was arrogant. But when he no longer had his, his palaces and his, uh, his generals and his handmaids, he really just became a pathetic old man. Well, when he was first captured in that uh, hole, um, his words apparently, and you pointed out in your book, were, I'm Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, and I'm prepared to negotiate. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of negotiation did he expect to be able to do? 
Well, as I recall, he said, yeah, I'm the president of Iraq. And one of my so great soldiers said, well, uh, greetings from President George Bush. You know, it, the, the first couple of days, David, were pretty interesting, because if you remember uh, Ambassador Bremer, when I brought him back to, uh, to my headquarters, Rick Sanchez, who was the senior military officer, immediately got the word he comes over and, and you know, we're going to verify that this is, in fact, Saddam Hussein. I mean, I, I wasn't about to tell my bosses that we had him until I could verify it. And of course, there was no mistake in him. He's a, his pretty recognizable. But we got him cleaned up and uh, took pictures of him. Uh, and then the next day was the day of the, the famous press conference where Bremer says, we got him. Uh, but interestingly enough, the ambassador hadn't seen him at that point in time. But that afternoon, he comes out to meet Saddam. A lot of the Iraqi uh, senior leaders came out at the same time. And he was just very arrogant. He was like, hey, hey boys, relax. I'm, I'm still the president of Iraq. Make no mistake about it. It was like a mafia boss talking to his underlings. And you could tell they were terrified. Uh, they had no idea what was going to happen with Saddam. And consequently, uh, they were, they were kind of keeping their distance. You know, we held on to him for 30 days, eventually passed him off to the military police who passed him off to the Iraqis. And of course, he was hung for his crimes about two years later. Did you ever wonder why he went to Tikrit, which is, was his native, his hometown, I guess it was. Right. Why not try to go someplace that wouldn't be obvious you were at? And why didn't he leave the country? Didn't he have some friends outside the country? He couldn't have, he couldn't have escaped? Yeah, I think the issue was, you know, every coalition force in Iraq was hunting him. And the reason he was in Tikrit, he had uh, a couple of handlers uh, that he trusted implicitly. And he was at a little farmhouse outside Tikrit that no one would ever notice. So it, there was nothing about it that had anything, unlike, you know, when you took a look at, uh, at Osama bin Laden later on, who was in a giant compound, walls were built up to kind of protect angles of view. With Saddam, it was just a small farmhouse uh, with absolutely no indication that anybody of any importance was living there. So frankly, he was smart to do that. But at the same time, you know, he knew he was not going to be able to get out of Iraq. I think what he thought was if he ever got captured, he'd kind of negotiate his way out of you know, eventually being hung. And of course, that didn't happen. So you point out in your book that maybe it wasn't clear it was Saddam Hussein because people hadn't seen him with a full beard. So you were going to get him shaved. Was that hard to do? Yeah, so it is a bit of a, a funny story. So as, uh, as we bring Saddam in, again, he's got a it's a huge beard. And I wanted to make sure that the Iraqis had no doubt in their mind that this was Saddam. So I, I turned to the Army Rangers who kind of helped me. And I said, hey, let's, let's get him a shave. Let's get him cleaned up. We'll get another picture of him so we can show kind of the before and, and the after picture. So I have to go off and I'm making calls to General Abizade at CENTCOM, to Stan McChrystal at, uh, back in Fort Bragg and, and making the calls I need to. And I come back in about half an hour later to check on him. And of course, my assumption was that my soldiers were going to, you know, kind of hold him in place and, and shave him and get him cleaned up. Well, I come back and, you know, Saddam's got a pair of scissors and he's just kind of, you know, cutting his beard off very nonchalantly. And I'm like, ah, you know, we've given him a pair of scissors. But I remember the one of the senior officers comes up to me before I told the young rangers to, to get him shaved and cleaned up. And the guy says, uh, I, I don't know, Bill, do we have authority to shave him? I said, hey, sir, we had the authority to kill him if he resisted. I think we have the authority to shave him, you know. But as it turned out, it was a non-issue. He was happy to get himself all cleaned up and looking pretty. And, uh, you know, we took the picture, which, uh, again, you, you've seen two pictures of Saddam. The one uh, when we first captured him with a giant beard. And then the one after that that we showed at the press conference uh, with 
with him being unmistakably Saddam Hussein. Did you have a chance to talk to him very much or you tried to avoid doing that? Yeah, so what I did, I went in every single day to visually see him. So for 30 days, every day I would come in and every day he'd stand up and I would just motion to him to, you know, take your seat. And I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to engage him in conversation. I didn't want him to think that uh, he had the opportunity to kind of get a conversation going. So I would go in, I'd talk to the doctor again. We always had a doctor and a security guy in the room with him. And it was not a cell, it was a room. And he would talk to the to my soldiers, but I told them, I said, do not engage him. No matter what he does, do not engage him. I don't want to put him in a position where, again, he thinks he's got uh, the upper hand because he started a conversation. And again, I would go in without my stars on, without my name tag on, but he knew that I was El Jefe, you know? And he, so he would occasionally say, why won't El Jefe talk to me? But the last day I did decide to engage him. He did not know I was about to uh, turn him over to the military police. Uh, after 30 days. And I knew that he didn't understand what was going on in the war. And frankly, there were a lot of Iraqis dying needlessly. And, uh, and so I, I finally did sit down with him and I had my translator there. And, and I knew how the questioning was going to go. But I asked him, I said, look, you're in a position to tell the Iraqis to kind of lay down their arms, just lay down their arms so we, we don't have to fight this ugly war uh, that's going on right now. So you can save more of your Iraqi citizens, if you will, you know, go on TV and tell them to lay down their arms. And, and of course, I knew the question was coming. And he said, and he looked me in the eye and he said, would you do that? You know, in other words, would you tell your men to surrender? And, and of course, uh, I, knowing the question was coming, I said, if it meant saving the citizens of my country, yes, I would. And he looks at me, he goes, no, you wouldn't. At that point in time, I said, okay, I need to let you know, I'm getting ready to move you right now. You are leaving. You will never see me again. So you've got 30 seconds to make, make up your mind. And I, he was really worried at that point in time because we were treating him pretty well. And he didn't know where he was going. But, I mean, it was one of these, hey, your time's up. And I just left. Never saw him again. The war was fought to some extent because uh, the perception that there were uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Did you ever ask him about that? Or did he say, hey, by the way, I don't have any weapons of mass destruction? Yeah, so we did have a, a team come, a government team come to question him. Yeah, he was never interrogated, as people think about interrogations. There was a team that came to question him about both uh, Captain Spiker, uh, who was the, the Navy officer we lost during the first Gulf War, uh, and of course about weapons of mass destruction, and about a whole host of, of other issues. And we were pretty convinced after talking to him that, you know, there were no weapons of mass destruction. There were really never any weapons of mass destruction. And he did not know the whereabouts of Captain Spiker. And from everything I talked to and the people that questioned Saddam, he didn't know where, where the remains of Captain Spiker would have been. It is interesting that uh, in hindsight, he could have told people he didn't have weapons of mass destruction right. a long time earlier and let people in investigate. But right. he didn't do that, I guess, because he wanted his enemies to think he had those. Think he had them. Right. So let me ask you. Uh, you know, when you're capturing uh, somebody like that and you ask him, what does he want? I, I vaguely recall that he wanted hair dye. He wanted to be able to still dye his hair dark. Is that true or not? Yeah, I don't remember that specifically, but that doesn't surprise me because he was very vain. Uh, and again, we, we took very good care of him, although there were some reports out there that somehow, you know, we were drugging him and we were doing this. And I started getting calls from senior officers. Hey, what are you doing to Saddam? I said, we're treating him perfectly fine. 
you know, he's getting four meals a day. He's actually getting great health care because he had he had some health issues and he hadn't eaten well. So he actually started to put on weight and 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 his health improved. But after the Bremer interview, I could see that that kind of bolstered his morale. And so I told him, Pastor Bremer, that's it. I'm in, I've been put in charge of Saddam. Nobody comes to visit him unless I approve it. And so we just kind of kept him in this room. Uh, we did have, again, a period of questioning, but nobody of any seniority came to visit him uh, because I just didn't want him to feel like he was still important. Did he feel like he was likely to be executed or he didn't worry about that? I don't think he thought he was going to be executed, David. This was interesting because, you know, in his mind, sooner or later, you know, somebody was going to come to him and say, okay, let, let's negotiate. You know, I was the president of Iraq, you know. Certainly, you know, the Americans aren't going to execute me. Well, no, of course not. We are going to turn you over to the Iraqi people. It will be their decision on what's going to happen to you. And I I do not think he felt like he was going to be executed. But of course, it was a long two-year process. The the trial dragged on, and, and obviously he was uh, eventually hanged. Now, Tom Brokaw more or less called the, your father's generation the greatest generation. And uh, you've served with another generation who you also call the next great generation. So how would you contrast your father's generation with your generation or younger people even than you in terms of their commitment to military life and the hardships necessary? Yeah, you, you know, David, I, I tell folks, uh, and I think people are surprised when I say this, but I am the biggest fan of the millennials and the Gen Z that you'll ever meet. And this narrative that somehow these young men and women are these soft, entitled little snowflakes, then I'm quick to point out you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan or, or going to the University of Texas trying to make a better life for their family. These young men and women, particularly the ones I worked with after 9-11, the young men and women that signed up to go to war after 9-11, they are a remarkable generation, and they are just as patriotic, just as committed as their parents and grandparents before them. Uh, and whenever people start to feel worried about the state of this country and about the divisiveness and about what's going on, you know, I, I just tell everybody, hey, calm down. You know, I've spent the last 40 plus years with these young men and women. They're going to get us through this. They, they are different than my generation, the baby boomers. I think they are, they are more entrepreneurial. Uh, they are more uh, dedicated to their friendships in a way that is important. They question authority and there's nothing wrong with that. They mobilize when they see something wrong. Um, they're going to figure a way to get us through these rough times and we will come out on the other end better because of this great generation. Well, we've been talking to Admiral Bill McRaven, who is the author of Sea Stories, among other books. And uh, he is a retired four-star admiral and Navy SEAL and did some great service for our country. Bill, I want to thank you for this conversation. We'll continue it on another uh, occasion, uh, talk about the capture of Osama bin Laden. Thank you, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.